0: Hi, this is Alex Gutentag for Public. Yesterday, a federal judge granted an injunction in the Missouri v. Biden lawsuit, blocking government agencies from communicating with social media companies to censor protected speech. Today, we're sharing two interviews about this huge Fourth of July victory. First, my colleague Michael Schellenberger interviews Missouri Senator Eric Schmidt, who started the lawsuit as Attorney General. Senator Schmidt echoes Michael's call that Jen Easterly, the head of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, should resign, and that Congress should mandate transparency. Then I talked to one of the plaintiffs in the case, Dr. Aaron Cariotti, former Director of Medical Ethics at UC Irvine. Dr. Cariotti explains the vast COVID censorship operation that he and his co-plaintiffs discovered through the lawsuit. Here are our conversations.
1: Hi, Senator. Hey, how's it going?
2: Nice to meet you.
1: Yeah, you too. I'm a fan Pleasure. of what you're doing. So,
2: congratulations on this wonderful victory. I'm so happy.
1: Yeah, it was. Uh, it was nice. We actually had the. Uh, I had the student loan debt forgiveness case too, that was decided on late last week. I thought that was going to be the big, the big win, and then <laughs> I didn't expect it on the Fourth of July. It's great.
2: That's great. Um, well, let's get into it. I know you're very busy because you must have a lot of media requests today so tell me what's so important about this ruling well
1: it's a big win for the first amendment and people's ability to speak their minds and i think it's a big blow for censorship uh you know we filed this lawsuit uh in the spring of 2022 so over a year ago um it was really kind of the opening salvo, and of course you had the twitter files that that followed but if you didn't have those two things it's important to, to put this into context none of this stuff would have come to light and people would still be being called conspiracy theorists and you have no evidence. And we've got to combat misinformation, and disinformation. I mean, that's just a ruse for censorship. And now all of that has been exposed. Uh, this vast censorship enterprise, as we've called it, I know others have called it a, a censorship industrial complex, whatever you want to call it, it's censorship. And for me, um, uh, You know, I love this country. One of the reasons I ran for office is I I believe in the American idea and central to that is people's ability to speak their minds freely, express their opinion in the town square or the virtual town square. And what we've seen here is the heavy hand of the federal government colluding with some of the biggest companies in the history of the world to censor speech and content, you know, and viewpoint um, uh, censorship. And that's just it's wrong. And so I think this case is very important of exposing it and stopping it. There's certainly more to do, but I think we should celebrate the big win on uh, Independence
2: Day. You mentioned the Twitter files. Did you you feel the Twitter files had an impact in terms of um, changing the course of the litigation?
1: Yeah, it, 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 it amplified the stuff that we knew and we sort of exposed in our initial round of discovery. One of the things that doesn't get a lot of attention is one of the key components here is we were able to conduct discovery before these, you know, preliminary motions. And that gave us a lot of evidence to present to the court to ultimately get to where we got yesterday. But I think the Twitter files are critical because that was a behind-the-scenes view. And I think, you know, Elon Musk has done uh, an incredible service to the country and our republic by exposing this and sort of opening up the books, what was behind the curtain here. Uh, And it's shocking. And the level of uh, coordination between senior government officials and senior social media uh, executives is really astounding. I mean, you had direct, you had text messages from the Surgeon General of the United States to senior Facebook officials. I mean, you had a lot of that kind of direct communication saying, take this down. We've flagged this. What else can we do? I mean, it's just, it's un-American. And so I think the Twitter files played a very a critical role uh, in furthering this along. And I think our country is going to be better for it.
2: Already, the ruling has received some criticism, including from Jamil Jaffer, who was um, who's at the director of the Knight Columbia Foundation project. He's formerly at ACLU. He wrote on Twitter, the question of when government job jawboning becomes coercive um, in violation of the First Amendment is a really difficult one. The sweeping ruling doesn't even try to grapple with it. He then said today, some of the facts Judge Doherty describes in this opinion raises serious constitutional questions but his order would insulate social media companies from criticism, not just coercion. He should narrow the order or the appeals court should do it for him. And then Daphne Keller from Stanford writes, in the injunction against Biden administration officials job boning social media companies, the judge makes a classic legal and logical error. He thinks he can protect free expression while leaving the government free to restrict content he personally considers bad or dangerous. She then provides a list of things, or she, she then screenshots. These are the kinds of online speech that the court says officials can urge platforms to suppress. How do you respond to those criticisms?
1: Well, I think first, um, that in this, in this injunction from the court, essentially, we had to demonstrate and did that we were likely to succeed on the merits, right? And so the court found that there was a we were going to succeed on the merits of, of essentially not just the, that the censorship existed, but you had this coercive relationship uh, and the the constant um, interaction between the government pressuring social media companies to take things down and censor. So that's was part of the record. And that was the basis of his decision. So, I mean, I suppose they can argue with it. I do find it interesting, though, that former member ECLU, current members of the ECLU, I'm 48, I'm sort of, I'm a Gen X guy, you know, growing up for me, that was an organization and liberals were fierce defenders of the First Amendment. What I find shocking now, and you saw this from the coverage yesterday from the Washington Post and the New York Times, their desire uh, to parrot the talking points uh, from, uh, from the administration as opposed to holding the government accountable for suppressing speech. I mean, these are news organizations that literally live and die under the protection of the fir- the First Amendment, the very amendment, that they seem not to care about as long as the censorship's happening to somebody else. And that's, a, I think, a very, very dangerous road to go down. I, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely shocked by how the legacy media has responded to all of this. Uh, I don't think it's healthy, um, but I think we have to continue to press forward and make the case and not only win the argument in court, but I think win the argument in the public. I think that what you see now—a pushback from this general narrowing of the bandwidth of what's acceptable speech, whether it's political correctness or censorship—these um, are these are fundamental issues that I think can unite the country, but are being used by, you know, folks on the left right now to divide people and say that the government has some interest in telling you what's misinformation and disinformation, and not just not just telling you, but censoring. Because part of this, I think, is we should have a robust discussion. I'm not afraid of anybody else's point of view on any topic. Let people decide. You know, let people get all the information and make their decisions. But that's not what was happening here. You had people being um, deplatformed and censored for, you know, espousing the lab leak theory, which now is the most likely theory, of course, even by intelligence agencies. You had people the same for efficacy of masks or transmissibility of COVID with the vaccine or the Hunter Biden laptop story. I mean, on and on and on. Um, You know, journalism used to mean, you know, sort of like questioning authority uh, and pushing back on the narrative of the government. um, And we were better for that. That's been they've lost the plot on that.
2: They say, hey, you know, they're just um, they have free speech rights too. you're an elected official or you're an you're a you're an appointee. But you or you work at the White House, you work at CDC or you work at. Uh, DHS or FBI, you can call up the, the social media companies and say, hey, we'd really rather you didn't post that. What's what's wrong with that? Why is that? Why would that possibly be a violation of free? Isn't that actually an expression of free speech to be able Hold to up. complain to the social media companies?
1: I think the difference is the power. The, the government has the power to regulate. Uh, the government has it. And it was very clear um, that, you know, some of these Section 230 protections were being put on the table if you didn't do exactly as I say. Right. And there's a big difference between Jen Psaki at that podium saying this administration believes that people should do X, Y and Z versus um, we disagree what's online. We're flagging it now. I mean, they were openly saying this. we're flagging it and working with them to um, to take that speech down. Those are two very different things. And so I think in this robust marketplace of ideas, um, we ought to have debate. We people ought to be able to express their point of view. Um, and then let the chips sort of fall where they may. But that is not the point of view right now of the, of the modern left or you know, some of these media types. They, they really want to inhibit people's ability to receive information. And there's nothing unique about that, Michael. I mean, that's been the way of the world for tyrants since the beginning of time and even in the world today. But America has always been this exception. We've been the exception. We believe, and I believe, that the First Amendment is really this pressure release valve for us, uh, you know, republic spread across the continent with with different points of view. A, a hopefully, a very sort of culturally diverse plural, you know, cultural pluralism. We believe in all that, um, but that in order to avoid political conflict, we we're able to speak our mind in the town square, the virtual town square. When you start to narrow that, uh, people get frustrated, and that, that's I think what's what's happening now. If you want to understand the frustration that's out there, people feel like you know they've got a sort of a muzzle on them, and uh, If it's not what this administration wants you to say or believe, then they're going to be shut down. That's not healthy.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, I thought the really powerful thing of reading the um, ruling was the ways in which the judge was able to show that just literally like a day, the same day or a few days after they would make these requests, they would then threaten the Section 230 protection of these companies but so so why um so the one way it seemed like they were trying to get around that was by having stanford university oversee this program why in your mind is that not okay to just have a non-governmental organization engage in the content moderation requests
1: yeah because you don't get to outsource your censorship and this this is an end around and i think you know even in washington um there you know in, in washington state there's been efforts to sort of Outsource this content moderation uh, monitoring effort, and then work with media companies. And so, it, it's just an end around. But ultimately, if the government is directing that, and the government is sort of bigfooting their way in and letting people know that you better do what we say or there's consequences, that's tantamount to the government doing it themselves. And I think that's a a key aspect of this case. And also, I think it's worth noting that that the judge even notes in the in the um, in the in the injunction that the sheer amount of this and the, the, the of it from agency to agency, whether it's, you know, CDC or CISA or the, the FBI or, I mean, DHS or HHS. I mean, this is a massive, uh, censorship enterprise and, and they all felt perfectly comfortable, you know, exerting that kind of power to censor Americans. And that's the chilling aspect of it. And I think the, the court notes that, that, um, uh, that this is perhaps the most um you know offensive uh example of, of violation of the first amendment in u s history, and so I think this case is really important, not just exposing it but stopping it and laying the groundwork to make sure this stuff never happens again and
2: what would you say to someone who says, you know look so like they they jawbone a little bit um but uh Facebook might take action on lab leak theory, but twitter did not take did not do anything about lab leak theory, so therefore there you know the first amendment is fine in other words you have the voices are getting out you just have these the rights of the platforms to make choices about their content i mean surely you're not suggesting that the content that that the platforms should be obliged to carry certain content that that seems like that would also violate the first amendment so doesn't this really just come down to the fact that um um that the social media companies can kind of do whatever they want and and um you know that really there's going to be a conversation, but ultimately, um, I mean, is that sort of, I guess the other question is sort of, does that worry you that really just end up having Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg decide what's what's allowed here? Or are we just doomed to having these big monopoly, big tech companies decide what we can listen to and and, and communicate?
1: Yeah, I think it's important uh, to not, to to your point, to not conflate these two issues. So on one hand, you've got what is the government doing? Like the government is prohibited from censoring, right? The government is supposed to protect the first amendment right, not infringe upon it. And what this case sets out to establish and has uh, is very unique. Most lawsuits have been filed against the big tech companies themselves. They end up in the Northern District of California and they never go anywhere. What made this case unique was we sued the government. We sued the federal government uh, that they were in violation or it was in violation of of the first amendment and so when the government's involved in that kind of collusion and um, coercion that's what this case is about you know what social media companies can and can't do with their terms of service or whatever that's a different debate and we ought to have that debate too i mean you know you've seen you know justice thomas has sort of written about hey these are more like public utilities now and you know whatever wherever we want it land on that that should be you know a legislative like for me for example i filed a bill to say look if social media platforms are engaged in this, they lose their, if they're engaged in violating people's First Amendment right, they should lose their Section 230 protections, right? Because, you know, under the Telecommunications Act in 1996, the idea was that this would be an open platform, right? And they wanted to shield these open platforms from liability, what people might say, because it was very different than being a publisher, Time Magazine or CBS News, right? Where they have to kind of manage a lot of this or they can get sued. But if we've entered an era now where, You know, Facebook can just shut you out from seeing, you know, half of the opinions because they don't like it. You know, it may be consistent with their terms of service, but is that an outcome we want to see? So we ought to have that debate. People can have a point of view on that. But this case stands for the proposition that the government cannot censor and they can't outsource that censorship or collude um, or coerce social media companies to do their bidding.
2: And what happens next with the lawsuit? I'm assuming it'll be appealed and then it could potentially make its way to the Supreme Court, couldn't it?
1: Yeah, I think that's the likely outcome. I would guess that the government would appeal to the Fifth Circuit, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, they'll get a panel there. It could go in banc, which means it's, you know, in front of all the the, the judges in that circuit. And then ultimately I think I do think, I mean that it's a little bit further down the road, but it goes to the Supreme Court. And I think it is of that it, this case is of the nature that um, the Supreme Court ultimately weighing in is, is likely what's going to happen. And uh, it, it just is a, such a consequence to who we are as a country. Do we value this principle embodied in the First Amendment or don't we? Or do we just like it when our side, our colored jersey gets to, you know, not let the other side say their peace? I mean that's not the America that I want to live in, and uh, so anyway, I think that's what is case the is. senator
2: is the solution. Though that government officials should be prohibited from ever contacting social media companies, or is it that they should have to be transparent about it? What is the final? What well, is the think, final solution in your view? Yeah,
1: I think that that what this case really hinges upon, right? In many ways, is what is the government doing um, to coerce or to collude, right? Um, And and that's what the the nature of the injunction is, that these government officials and these agencies can no longer engage in behavior that the judge found to, to, you know, um, succeed on the merits, cross the line of just, hey, here's kind of what we think about this issue versus you better take that down or, you know, you're going to have hell to pay. I mean, that's, that's what that was happening. And it was so widespread that it's just hard to ignore. And you see now these talking heads on MSNBC or, again, some legacy media types trying to, to go through the mental gymnastics of justifying censorship. I don't get it, um, and that's what this case is all about. So I think that uh, uh, they've crossed the line from having a conversation or, or expressing a point of view from the podium to um, you're going to – the regime says you need to do X, Y, and Z, and it's a ministry of truth. Don't don't we
2: just ultimately need transparency? In other words, it seems like if a government official is to contact a social media company, that that person should have to immediately notify, make some public notice of it, since it's the secret pressure campaigns that are so insidious. In other words, it's it seems to me that if, if President Biden or someone from the White House stands up and says, we wish Facebook wouldn't do this, that's one thing. It's another thing for behind the scenes to be threatening them. And then vice versa, shouldn't the social media companies have to be transparent about the censorship decisions that they're making? Why the American people have given these social media companies Section 230 protection, which is incredibly powerful liability protections. Don't we deserve to have the transparency um, by the social media companies uh, explaining the censorship decisions that they're making, and then shouldn't we simply mandate that government officials be transparent about whenever they're asking for something? Because obviously, there's some things like an election official might say, "Hey, you know, somebody is saying bad information online," or is even that too much uh, uh, power to give them? What's your? I, I guess, uh, yeah,
1: I think transparency is good. I guess I, I'm I am a. Uh... I mean, there's probably a spectrum of, of where people fall in the, uh, you know, they, and they, how they value free expression <clears> and keeping the government out of um, that kind of decision making. So, and and I'm, I would probably fall in the line of, I, I just, I fundamentally believe that um, the way this Republican work is that we have this free flowing, you know, information. And by the way, that extends the, to ideas and beliefs that you vehemently disagree with. That you think are are really detrimental to the country or to your community or whatever. I mean, I think that that we have to have an airing of this out and people can make their own decisions. So I'm, I'm pretty wary of government officials, you know, putting their thumb on the scale here. That's different than an interview or, hey, we disagree with with something that was said. Here's our point of view. That's that's one thing. But this crossed the line into. Coercion and collusion. And that's very dangerous when you have, again, the massive power of the federal government combined with, again, the the power of some of the biggest companies in the history of the world, like Meta, uh, you know, in Twitter, the reach that it has, that's that's very dangerous. I would also throw out another idea. I think that, you know, we've talked about uh, sort of on the back end of this with the social media companies, there need to be severe repercussions for government officials who engage in this. And whether that means a, a private right of action or being able to sue the government if you've been, um, uh, if, you're, if your First Amendment rights have been violated, I think that ought to be on the table. I'm certainly going to work on that in the Senate also. I just think that we've got to protect this, you know, First Amendment right to, to dissent. And, uh, you know, we could talk about all the dissent that proved to be true, but whether they or end up being proven to be true or not i mean the i just the idea that ideas are being challenged and that some ideas win the day and some lose is very important to the country
2: okay but so on the but um, i know i only have you for a couple more minutes so um, so basically your proposal is we just prohibit government officials from contacting social media companies to to demand changes to content moderation and it sounds like you agree that we should make transparency around content moderation, censorship decisions by the social media companies, transparent that we should mandate that in exchange for them having Section 230 protection. Do I, do I have that right?
1: Yes, yes. So I, w- I would be supportive of the, what you're talking about as far as what those decisions are. I think that would be uh, definitely a positive step. I think that if, if, and I also would go a step further that if you're gonna enjoy the benefits of Section 230 protections, you could lose them if you're engaged in in this sort of content moderation in my view that's my point i think that if you're going to hold yourself out as an open platform you don't really get to play it you know play it both sides of it you don't get to have it both ways and then i would also say another step of this which is important is what do we do to hold government officials accountable for their actions in engaging in this because that you know in many ways that's the elephant in the room right it's if you don't if you don't have Um, You know, the head of CISA or you don't have the surgeon general or the press secretary for the White House coming in and saying this is going to happen to you if you don't, you know, work with us on content, you know, moderation or, you know, uh, if we don't have that piece to it and we're just dealing with the social media companies, I don't think that's a complete solution here. And, and, and sorry,
2: one final thing before you go. I mean, does CISA have any purpose? I mean, shouldn't it just be defunded and disbanded at this point? The head of it seems to me has lost the public trust. She should be fired. Um, the whole thing should yeah. be disbanded. It's yeah. not like the United States didn't do cybersecurity before they created CISA. Um, these, these Don't these agencies just have to be abolished after they commit uh, violations of the constitutions that are so serious don't we just need to shut them down because they're just, they pose too much of a danger to the American people.
1: Well, first of all, Jenner Easterly ought to resign, no doubt about that, the head of CISA. And I think that, that the people getting swept up in this now who were engaged in it, they ought to be exposed and there ought to be consequences. Um, but I, I think what's interesting is, is I've talked to people about this lawsuit. You start talking about the number of agencies involved and sort of sub agencies. A lot of people don't, had no idea that these existed in the first place. So I do think, you know, not that anybody pays attention to this, uh, Michael, but I gave my first speech on the Senate floor about a month ago, um, and it's really a time where you kind of outline your your priorities as a senator. And a lot of these fights that I had as a G, you know, are important to me now as I come into my Senate service. And to me, my, my speech for this is the country in history of the world because we believe in an idea, we believe in the rights that come from God and come from Texas rights. Franklin says as he walks out, right, you got a republic. If you can keep it, because this is a very unnatural thing in the course of human history, right, to have this kind of freedom against the rulers. Right. And so uh, to me, the two biggest threats are the the uh, supercharged administrative state and these unprecedented attacks on free speech. And I think that uh, if we keep that in mind and go after these agencies that have way too much power, look, if this is such a good idea, uh, what name the idea that an agency wants to push, push, let Congress vote on it right? That, that's the solution to get rid of some of these issues. And then also with free speech, we've got to have some, some solutions to protect people's fundamental right to expression.
2: Senator Schmidt, thank you so much All for right. taking the time. I appreciate you fighting for our free speech rights. We're very grateful to you. This is a huge victory and we're very, everyone's very, very happy.
1: Thanks for what you're doing too. Appreciate it.
0: Hi, Aaron.
3: Hey, Alex. Great to be with you. How are you? I'm good. Good.
0: I'm really Happy excited to be having
3: this conversation.
0: Yeah, I'm really, really excited to talk to you. Um, can you start by just introducing yourself?
3: Yeah, so I'm Aaron Cariati. I'm a physician and a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, where I direct their Bioethics and American Democracy program. I'm also a senior scholar at the Brownstone Institute. For most of my career, I was in academic medicine, I was a professor of psychiatry at the University of California, Irvine, where I also directed the medical ethics program. But the university and I parted ways about a year and a half ago after I challenged their vaccine mandate in federal court. So if you want to go sideways with your employer, uh, try to challenge their policies by suing them in federal court. And that's a pretty, uh, (laughs) pretty fast track to getting fired.
0: Yeah. So you were one of the first, I feel like, who really stood up against the vaccine mandates in a very public way. Yeah. Um,
3: yeah. I I published a piece in the Wall Street Journal as the university was debating. Well, I shouldn't say debating. They actually weren't debating this policy. They were getting ready to finalize this policy. And w- The the title of that piece was Why University Vaccine Mandates Are Unethical. And I focused on universities because they were the first institutions in the United States to institute vaccine mandates. Corporations and governments and other entities followed suit. But the reason I published that was precisely to try to get a conversation about the issue going on campus. I had been on the committee at the UC Office of the President, which oversaw not just UC Irvine, but all five of the UCs that had hospitals. And our committee had basically developed all of the COVID policies throughout the pandemic, except when it came time for this policy. And then it just came down from on high and there was no discussion, there was no debate, didn't go through our uh, committee of experts. And I found that puzzling because it was clear to me that of all the pandemic policies, including the ventilator triage policy, which is publicly sensitive, you know, if we run out of ventilators, how do we allocate them is a very difficult ethical question. But of all the policies even that one the vaccine mandate policy was by far going to be the most controversial um ethically consequential it's precisely the one where there should have been a robust debate on campus but um but there wasn't and so I wrote this piece and that that didn't that didn't get a conversation <laughs> going at the office of the president either and then once I started seeing students and my colleagues being steamrolled by this policy, you know, nurses being fired who had worked there for decades, um, worked through the pandemic, uh, treating patients, getting fired for just standing up to, for their their right of informed consent, their right to decline a novel medical intervention. Um, then I decided that I had to try to do something about the policy, not just speak out against it, but actually try to change it. So that was the that was the reason I decided to file the lawsuit. Um, and you know, the rest is history.
0: And you were fired correct over the,
3: yeah. Yeah, the that's right. mandate. Yeah. They, they fired me for alleged noncompliance with the very policy that I was mm-hmm. still challenging in federal court. Um, I say alleged because the university declined my medical exemption twice. Mm-hmm. It was signed by my physician. Um, and they also they had accommodated other faculty members, allowing them to work remotely, um, take a sabbatical, and so forth. But they wow. uh, they didn't offer me the same kind of accommodations um, because wow I, had, I because don't because I, had I re- challenged them.
0: Yeah, I don't think I realized that part of the story.
3: Yeah, yeah, it was pretty retaliatory. I mean, the the day after the court declined my request for a preliminary injunction, the university placed me on what they called investigatory leave. And then a month later on unpaid suspension, a month after that, they fired me basically as as quickly as they could per the university um, kind of protocol for getting rid of a full professor.
0: And how did you feel when all of this happened?
3: I mean, it um, it was surreal. I wasn't shocked that that was... That was the I mean, I knew when I filed the lawsuit, that was probably the beginning of the end for me at the university. Um, I was surprised at, uh, at some people at the university and, you know, reaching out to support me, people that I didn't expect. And I was disappointed at other people that I would have considered friends um, who, who didn't support me and didn't uh, didn't reach out. So you learn you learn who your real friends are when you go through something like that. Um the whole experience was a bit surreal. Um mm-hmm. it was certainly a career uh change for me. I had expected I'd been there 15 years did my residency there so 19 years if you count that. And I expected to retire at the university. That was sort of my career plan and my career path. So um I was scrambling last year to Figure out how to put together a private practice quickly so I could continue seeing my patients um, and then, you know, figure out how I was going to make a living and put food on the table. And um, I'm the father of five children. I was the primary breadwinner for the family. And, um, you know, so I had to uh, I had to figure things out pretty quickly. Fortunately, uh, some independent research institutes, some think tanks, uh, the Ethics and Public Policy Center, the Brownstone Institute, which I mentioned in my introduction, um, you know, reached out with with support. Lots of other people reached out with uh with support, including financial support. People from around the world. I had, had just a flood of correspondence after my story went public. So so that part was actually edifying, uh just mm-hmm. to see how many people um, you know, were sort of grateful for someone taking a stand against irrational and harmful COVID policies.
0: Yeah. Did you, do you think your background in psychiatry helped you understand some of Mm. the behavior that was going on at the time? Because now things are sort of normal and it's easy to forget the way that people acted, but at the time it was very intense.
3: Yeah, it was. I mean, yeah, I I think I was probably attuned to some of the social dynamics and the behavioral dynamics you know just based on my training and my clinical experience with people um, it was clear that people were behaving primarily out of fear and Mm -hmm. you know what we know what we know about fear and anxiety is that it clouds our thinking and that um when people are operating in a state of fear they often make uh misjudgments um, I mean, it affects our thinking, and it affects our behavior, where they often act out in ways that are impulsive, and sort of desperate. And I think we had deliberate attempts. Um, I Actually, I don't think I know we had deliberate attempts on the part of governments to increase the level of fear in the population. Yeah, because that's a good way to control people. And it turned out to be very, very effective. People, people did things. I mean, if you were, Back in 2018, if you would have told people, look, in a, a year or two, you know, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to show a QR code demonstrating that you've injected a novel substance into your body that the public health authorities wanted you to take, just to get on a plane, get on a train, go to a restaurant or a concert or gather in a public place, Americans would have looked at you like you just landed you know, on the earth from Mars or something. What are you talking about? We would never accept a regime like that in our country where we have, you know, freedom of speech and freedom of association and, you know, bodily autonomy to decide, um, you know, what medications or injections we do or don't want to take as competent adults. That just sounds crazy. Mm -hmm. But after a year of emotional and psychological abuse, essentially from lockdowns, social isolation, um, People were ready to do any, they were desperate. They were ready to do anything to get back to a semblance of a normal life. And, um, and that, that made it possible for many people to essentially be coerced um, under duress to, uh, to take something that turned out to be neither effective for very long or, uh, or safe, certainly not safe in the way that it was, that it was touted.
0: Yeah, I think that's something that gets forgotten is the way that lockdown impacted the vaccine mandates yeah. and the attitudes around it, because it was psychologically very difficult for a lot of people, very understandably. And that sort of positioned um, or paved the way for <laughs> some of yeah. the extreme resentment towards unvaccinated people that we saw. That's right.
3: Yeah, the unvaccinated were characterized as the only remaining obstacle, the only reason that you're not able to get back to normal. So they're the ones kind of, you know, even though it was the government that was restraining our rights and removing them um, or private corporations or whoever, um, the blame was placed on the unvaccinated. Uh, Blame was not placed on a product that failed to stop infection or transmission. Blame was not placed on the misguided lockdown policies which never stopped the spread of the virus either and were um, extremely harmful and misguided from the beginning blame was shifted onto the uh, the scapegoat uh, which was the unvaccinated noncompliant people and that that was that was very effective matthias desmond and others have described the social dynamics of how this this kind of mass formation process Works, um, Renee Girard's work on the scapegoating mechanism in in society also, I think, goes a long way to explaining a lot of the social dynamics that we saw. But it was incredible the just the level of vitriol and hatred that many people openly expressed toward individuals who declined vaccination.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, I know you said that you were able to kind of meet a lot of people through this experience and it was edifying in a lot of ways, but how did it feel to be scapegoated? I mean, at a base level.
3: Um, well, I think it would have been intolerable without strong support from my family, um, strong support from my wife. Uh, it was hard enough with, you know, the people closest to me who loved me and cared about me uh, supporting me. It it was hard enough with, even with the sort of growing community of, I guess, pandemic policy dissidents that I was connecting with and with all the people from around the world, you know, reaching out to me and, um, and thanking me. So I think without that, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine. I mean, it would have been terribly alienating and isolating. Um, It would certainly make most rational people doubt their convictions, um, even if they were firmly grounded and, you know, firmly tethered to reality and uh, good empirical science and so forth. So these are enormously powerful social forces um, that, that permit human beings under the, under certain historical conditions and circumstances, uh, to, you know, basically, uh, t- to, do massively harmful things, uh, sometimes downright evil things. Uh, you know, we saw this in Germany in the 1930s. Uh, we, we saw it basically, if you look at all the totalitarian systems of the 20th century, you had a process like this of, um, taking uh taking a society where there was a lot of fear there was deliberate attempts to isolate people socially and then there was a process of scapegoating the other uh, to try to consolidate power and as a kind of quasi pseudo substitute for real social solidarity um and you know so you get you get people informing on their own parents who ask questions about the regime and we saw the same thing during the pandemic, um, it's the, the, the social dynamics have been well described by uh, Desmond, by Hannah Arendt and, and others. And, you know, we tend to think of the Germans of the 1930s as uh, people who were somehow built differently than us. And that mm-hmm. kind of thing could never could never happen here. Um, but I think it's it should be clear, more clear to more people after the last three years um, that atrocities uh, um, and, and social movements that, uh, that do massive harm and that uh, unfairly stigmatize part of the population are something that we're also capable of. You've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.